Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. There are many words in history that evoke images, carry with them connotations simply by their mere mentioning. Revolution, genocide, maybe none more so than assassination. Historians love to play the what-if game. What would Reconstruction have looked like if Abraham Lincoln had made it home from Ford's Theater? How might the civil rights issue in Vietnam have been different if President Kennedy had agreed to ride in a closed-topped car that fateful day in Dallas? No event in the 20th century, however, set off more of a whirlwind with global ramifications than the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on June 28, 1914. The repercussions would not only result in 10 million dead and another 30 million wounded, but paved the way for the rise of fascism and the Cold War that gripped the second half of the 20th century. How much of the story do you really know? Did the Archduke have premonitions of his own death? How many other victims did the cursed car they rode in claim? And how did the license plate predict when the guns would fall silent? Find out in this episode of The Missing Chapter. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to The Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Don't forget to follow us on all major podcast distributors. Hello, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining the Missing Chapter again. It's great to have you guys along on episode three. Uh, Before we get to anything else, I think it's important. I know you're probably asking yourself, in addition to what story you're going to hear today, what are the boys brewing? And we have a real treat. We we went with Lavazza coffee out of Torino, Italy. It's a dark roast and it has a touch of chocolate. And I'll tell you, For somebody who likes to drink their coffee with a lot of cream, a decent amount of sugar, I'm drinking this black. It's sweet. It's a dark roast. It's phenomenal, Phil. It's one of the best that we've had, you know, thus far, I think. Oh, the aroma is amazing. And uh, I, too, am drinking this black. So that kind of shows you what kind of coffee we're we're dealing with. Uh, To piggyback off what uh, Phil just said, I just want to thank everybody for listening and for tuning in. Uh, We are officially in 27 states and five countries worldwide. So we really appreciate all the support and uh, taking the time to uh, listen to our podcast and what we have to say. So I don't think uh, this episode is going to disappoint. This is something where Phil and I um, have, have spoken a lot to our students about. This is one of the most incredible stories that, that uh, we really enjoy telling everybody, and I think you'll enjoy as well. So Phil, what we have here today um, you know, is one of those highly sought after events that I think a lot of historians love talking about um, in World War I and the events leading up to it. But 
I don't know if we know the background of it and do we understand the butterfly effect that's going to happen uh, throughout history from here on out. Right. And I think we have a lot to get to. I think we have a lot to unpack for, for you, the listeners. And I want to make sure I'm doing a good job to set the stage for what Phil's going to talk about later on by not just dropping you in the middle of a movie and expecting you to know the plot and to know what's going on. So I am going to spend the first few minutes here talking about where Europe is to get to the point where Franz Ferdinand is a major role player in 20th century you know, history. So Europe, by the time the Napoleonic Wars kind of wrap up, come to an end in 1815, warfare had pretty much been a way of life in Europe for centuries. And at times it was truly devastating. The 30 Years War from 1618 to 1648, get this, Phil, estimated directly or indirectly to have caused the death of almost a third of the entire population of Germany. That's incredible. And in some regions, the proportion was even higher. I don't know if we have that, that kind of scope in our brains to really understand how many people that is. Right. And, and by contrast, the century between the Congress of Vienna, which had met in 1814 and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, you, really, you only witnessed a small number of wars in Europe. And they were really relatively limited in impact, limited in duration. They were more about territorial expansion and loss rather than casualty numbers. And I think that's important because when we turn the century and we go into the 20th century, and Europe had, had, had been really relatively peaceful for almost 100 years, this idea of what warfare was actually like had been lost on that, on that generation. I think it was more of a glamorized reading out of a history book. It was more of what your ancestors had told you about how they'd gone off and proven themselves. I think to a certain degree, they'd lost the idea of what warfare was really like and the hells that it brought with it. Absolutely agreed. Yep. Um, so by the turn of the 20th century, Europe was experiencing a relatively unprecedented period of peace, at least on the surface. But beneath that surface, there were a lot of key elements at work. And they'd been at work for a long period of time that was starting to threaten the peace. Beginning in 1884 with the Berlin Conference, Europe was starting a frantic race for colonies, a frantic race uh, for resources around the globe, you know, starting with Africa and slowly moving east into the Middle East. These European countries, namely Britain, Germany, France, were trying to feed that industrial revolution in the factories that had sprung up in the 1750s. Countries were starting to industrialize at breakneck pace. And it was also filtering down into the militaries, which is, I, I think is important to point out. A lot of European nations had built navies, which they hadn't to prior to 1900. Their standing armies were larger. They were uh, better equipped to fight land wars. Military generals were starting to be allowed to have much more say in international relations and diplomacy. And the weaponry itself was much more advanced, um, which we'll see would, would make for a much deadlier war at the outbreak of war in 1914. The alliances were mostly verbal, uh, unformal alliances. We'll see the more formal alliances take shape after uh, the events play out in June of 1914. But certainly people are aware of countries their motives in doing things, and which side of, of other neighboring countries on the continent of Europe uh, countries lay in. So we're seeing 
take place before our very eyes in this time period, with everything going on, you have uh, almost like a perfect storm of events taking place, whether behind the scenes or out in view of public. Uh, something where it might only take a spark to, to blow this whole thing up. Right. And we, we usually tell kids in class, Phil, you know, you have this balloon and slowly but surely different factors are, are inflating that balloon. And it just has to reach a point where something is going to pop it. What, what's the event that pops the balloon, ends this peace in Europe, and ultimately throws the world into a situation where it, it hadn't found itself Maybe ever, maybe ever. So that's where uh, Europe is at this point. I want to get to Franz Ferdinand, kind of the focus for episode three, and give you some background as to who he was. Uh, some of his early life, he was born in Austria, Graz, Austria, on, on December 18th, 1863. He was the oldest son of Archduke Karl Ludwig, who was the younger brother of Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph. And he was a member of the House of Habsburg which was one of these big, old, old empires that really for, for centuries had come to dominate Europe and had been at their height prior to the 20th century. They were almost on a downward swing. But the House of Habsburg really had ruled the Holy Roman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Spanish Empire. And for Franz, who had begun his military career at the young age of 12, this is really the environment he grew up in. He, he was expected to be royalty and, and act like it. And after becoming a major general in 1894, he continued to move up the ranks. He was appointed an admiral of the Austro-Hungarian Navy in 1902, where he eventually became inspector general to the armed forces in 1913. And why that's significant is that this would explain his later role, which brings him to Bosnia in June of 1914. He's there to kind of inspect the troops and expect forces in this area of Europe. Um, like I said, the Habsburgs ha have been around forever. Get this, the earliest ancestor of the Habsburg dynasty was traced back to the 10th century. Oh my gosh. Right, so... It's hard to fathom, right? It is, it's totally, I was just going to say, it, it's really hard to fathom that because I, I don't know if when you think of global history, you don't necessarily go right to the Habsburgs. So I think that that's kind of, a, you know, a lost history that, that people tend to forget about. But to date back to the 10th century, that's that's pretty remarkable. Right. You know, and even if people are familiar with the names, you know, Franz Ferdinand, maybe they don't really understand his title, his role and why he found himself in the position that he did. Uh, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, that we'll get to. He also wasn't the in line to become the um, the heir to the throne. Franz Ferdinand was only the nephew of Emperor Franz Joseph. But when Franz Ferdinand's cousin, uh, Crown Prince Rudolf, committed suicide in 1889, his father, Karl Ludwig, became heir to the empire. Karl dies of typhoid fever in 1896, and all of a sudden, Franz finds himself next in line. Okay, so... A little background for the listeners. So when we teach our students about the spark that really started World War I, we always go back to the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, right. what you're, you're unveiling for us right now is the fact that he really shouldn't even have been the Archduke? There were a lot of things that had to take place. A lot of things that had to take place in his career and with the, the people who were supposed to inherit the throne ahead of him. Absolutely. So the next responsibility for Franz Ferdinand is to find a wife. 
find a wife and and have a family and hopefully have a son who's able to inherit the throne you know, from him eventually. And in 1894, Franz Ferdinand meets Countess Sophia Schotak, who is um, of a family of Czech nobles, and immediately falls in love. By all accounts, it's love at first sight. The problem is the way the family lineage functions, the marriage is required to be one of a reigning or formerly reigning dynasty of Europe, which the Schotaks uh, were neither. And she's she, her family is very obscure and no one in the Habsburgs are even familiar with their uh, with their name, which is going to set off a string of important events here. First off, it takes a long time for Franz Ferdinand to even convince the family that this woman is going to be his wife. In fact, they keep their their relationship secret for almost a full year. And eventually, when when they decide to marry and they're allowed to marry, that's not the end of the scrutiny that Sophia faces. She becomes really the victim of countless petty slights um, by uncles and aunts. At imperial banquets, for example, she enters the room last. She's not given a male escort. Um, she's seated far away from her husband at the dinner table. You know, really petty little things like that. But it's really a, kind of a nice story, Phil, of, of love. I mean, it, in a time where people were expected to marry to form political and military alliances. You have Franz Ferdinand who flat out, you know, married his wife because he loved her. Well, then that's pretty rare because obviously the focus for centuries has always been on the family lineage, right? Making sure that there's a son to take over the throne as the Archduke. Of course, he understands that because he would be the heir to the throne. But I think for, for this type of story, this whole love story is that it's not just focused on the lineage, but the relationship itself. I think it's phenomenal. Now, I, as much as I wish that that love story had a, a better ending, um, unfortunately, it does not. Right. And they married on July 1st, 1900, which I'm going to point out because as they travel to Bosnia-Herzegovina in the Balkans, they're getting ready to celebrate their 14th wedding anniversary. And as inspector general of the army, that's why he's he's going there. In that capacity, he's agreed to attend a series of military exercises in Bosnia, Austria-Hungary's just annexed these provinces just a few years earlier, you know, against the wishes of neighboring Serbia, which likewise coveted them, wanted them. Ferdinand really didn't have that that best view on the Serbs either. Um, in various quotes, he referred to them either, either as pigs, thieves, murderers, scoundrels. Um, yet he had opposed annexation really out of fear because he was already making a, a turbulent political situation even worse. You know, the Balkans during this time period were referred to as the powder keg of Europe, because people were pretty sure something bad, if it were to happen in Europe, would happen in the Balkans. Um, it had been formally controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina's population, get this, roughly 40% Serb, 30% Muslim, 20% Croat, with various other ethnicities you know, making up the remainder there. So they really didn't have a lot in common with the rest of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that's one of the reasons they want to break away. They want to rule themselves. And, you know, you have a lot of this, this tension that's just seething. So upon learning of Ferdinand's upcoming visit, a group called the Young Bosnians, a uh, secret revolutionary society of peasant students, begin plotting to assassinate him. And in May, three individuals, including a young Gavrilo Princip, travel to the Serbian capital of Belgrade. And we'll come back to that. Ferdinand and Sophia departed their estate for Bosnia-Herzegovina on June 23rd. They've received multiple warnings, interestingly uh, enough, to cancel the trip. 
The Archduke knew that danger potentially awaited them. He was quoted as saying, our journey starts with an extremely promising omen. He joked, he purportedly said that the axles on his car had overheated, the car is burning, and hopefully things won't uh, get any worse from here on out. Uh, Following a banquet with religious and political leaders when they arrive in the city, he's only one day removed from returning home. And on the morning of June 28th, the Archduke starts off by answering a telegram uh, from his eldest son, where he informs his father that he just received a really uh, great grade on an exam that he had taken, and Franz was congratulating him. He and Sophie had boarded a train for the short ride into Sarajevo, like I said, their last night there. And for once, Sophie was permitted to walk alongside Ferdinand, which we said was rare. Um, The couple got into an open-topped car for a motorcade ride to City Hall. And the car in front of them was supposed to carry six specially trained officers, but instead only had one, plus three local policemen which if you're somebody who believes in you know, conspiracy theories, you might build uh, something off of that. But in fact, throughout the trip, Austro-Hungarian officials really had allegedly focused more attention on dinner menus than on the actual security details to begin wow. with. Wow. Wow. Well, so that that's the a great segue. Yeah. yeah, the stage has been set. Because obviously, as our listeners um, have probably understood, I mean, anybody who's listening to our podcast must love history. And, and the fact that, uh, you know, we have some history lovers in, in our audiences right now, I think they can probably see the, the, the stage being set for World War I happening and taking place. Because at, at some point, you probably recognized that the fate of the Archduke and his wife is not good. And of course, we know at this point that that's one of the reasons why World War I started. Um, but the story itself, uh, we got to get into those events because, I mean, there's got to be some unknown events in, in this story. So let's get into that. The, the part where you left off is that the security detail was a little lax. Um, I think that's something there because when we think of a motorcade in 2020, mm-hmm. we think of, uh, you know, if any sort of dignitary, uh, the president, the vice president, anybody in our, our cabinet who is in a motorcade, you do it for the safety of the people within the motorcade not for the public view. And that's actually the opposite of what's happening in the early 1900s. These guys, they publicly make known their their motorcade trip. Not so everyone is, you know, available to say, hey, this is these are the areas you have to avoid. No, for the public so they could actually see the royalty come in. So it's nice of them to do that, but it really puts them in a really dangerous situation right. because now you have uh, basically uh, just open map of where these people are going to be. And a person like Gavrilo Princep is going to take advantage of that. Which brings me to my next point. The Black Hand is a, an organized uh, national terrorist group. Gavrilo Princep, 19 years old, he's part of that group. And there's a, a bunch of them who, with bombs ready in hand, uh, position themselves throughout the city and near the motorcade. So they're essentially lined up. Of course, he's one of the younger ones. He's actually really shouldn't even be there because the black hand really didn't like him. He was kind of uh, frail. He was kind of sickly. He had some health issues growing up. And of course, he's only 19 years old at this point. So really, he, he really shouldn't have even been there. But he does have a little bit of background, which we'll get into later, which enables him to have maybe a little bit more gall than some of these other um, assassins do. So you can picture the story now. We have a driver who may be a little bit unfamiliar with the car, 
this is a double phaeton. This is a, a 1910 graph and stiff double phaeton. Now, that might not mean much to our listeners, but what it really is to, to paint a picture is this isn't his typical car. Uh, the Archduke is, is in a, an area that he doesn't really necessarily know. Um, he's obviously not going to bring his own personal car. He's in a different area. So he, he's essentially being chauffeured by, um, by a driver uh, who he's mutual friends with. Now, this Grafenstift uh, double Phaeton is, is like the Rolls Royce of the day. It's really well built. It's a 32 horsepower four cylinder engine, which in that time uh, was actually a very powerful, very uh, indestructible engine. Mercedes actually took some of the the uh, specs on that and created their own motors out of it. So we know it's it's very well built. And of course, when you have a dignitary, an Archduke traveling, you want to have the best of the best. So they do have that, but it is a little atypical of the era. And I, I do want to point that out because it is a somewhat unfamiliar or unfamiliar car for the driver who is uh, Leopold Loika. Okay, so that, that's going to come into, into a very important piece right here. So Leopold Loika, Sophie and the Archduke are traveling down their pre-planned motorcade uh, area. So as they're driving, we have the, the black hand um, essentially lined up on the street. The opportunity arises and a few of them decide, here's our time. Let's assassinate the Archduke as well as everybody in the motorcade. And the bomb has been thrown. The bomb uh, at that point is a typical bomb for that era. And it takes around 10 seconds to detonate. And without timing it perfectly, that bomb could go off at any second. But they do know they have 10 seconds. They obviously didn't count their 10 seconds off because you'd want to let go of that bomb right before it explodes. So they know it explodes essentially on impact. Maybe losing some sort of focus. They, they throw it too early. It actually bounces off the convertible top of the motorcade. It, it bounces off the double Phaeton. Um, some people have were witnesses to this and said, I don't know if this is maybe through legend. Some people say that, that um, one of the, the people in the motorcade swatted it. I, I honestly think that uh, evidence shows that it really bounced off of, of the convertible top uh, because people weren't anticipating this to happen. But either way, it bounces off. It lands underneath the car behind him. The car behind him do have some security uh, security guards in there, as well as uh, some people who are, who are just trying to keep a lookout, as well as, you know, like just trying to make sure that they're on the motorcade uh, plan that they have that they had set in stone. It explodes under that motorcade. It, it kills one and uh, injures several. Now, the, the driver, the chauffeur of the Archduke and Sophie, obviously is, is, I wouldn't say a professional driver, but he's been doing this for a long time. He's a chauffeur. He understands the, the importance of this um, security detail and floors it. And at that point with 32 horsepower, you can imagine it's probably not what we would envision as flooring it, but essentially tries to speed off. He speeds off. He avoids uh, the explosion behind him um, and takes a turn. Now he's trying to go down these, these roads, which he's never really been down. In, and he's in a car that he's pretty unfamiliar with because he, this is once again, a very atypical car for that era, especially the shift pattern, which we'll talk about in a second. But He's, he's going down an area where he's not really familiar with, and he's going kind of off, off the pre-planned route. Now, he gets to the governor's uh, palace, and he, the Archduke actually points out to the governor. He says, boy, you welcome your guests with bombs? Is that how you welcome your guests? So the governor, of course, uh, is trying to um, 
calm them down and, and reassure them that this is not how they typically welcome their guests. However, the Archduke is adamant. Once he hears that somebody in this motorcade has been injured, he decides to turn around and go to the hospital in which these people are located. Now, this is going to be a very fateful decision, uh, one that Sophie actually tries to talk him out of. Sophie insists that they don't go anywhere, that they stay at the governor's uh, headquarters, but he is very adamant that he, he wants to do his job as the Archduke to support the people that were trying to support him, and they attempt to, to go back to the hospital. Don't you think that says a lot about him, though, too, and what we've learned? He, he seems like a pretty amicable individual. Like, I, I don't envision, we learn about kings and queens throughout history. He actually seems like a good guy. I mean, how many of the kings and queens would have just continued on with their their planned routine, right? He I wants completely to go agree. Check on his security detail. I kind of like that. Absolutely. So as great of a gesture as that was, on the way to the hospital, the driver, Leopold Loika, with the Archduke and his wife, Sophie, actually make a wrong turn. Quickly realizing his mistake, he attempts to make a multi-point U-turn, but you got to remember, Loika is dealing with a couple of, of variables here. He's wrestling with an unfamiliar route and an equally unfamiliar vehicle, his foot actually misses the accelerator and stalls. Now, the, the, the key point of this is the fact that he stalls long enough for Princip, who's sitting in the cafe, to not only recognize the car, but then realize that he has another opportunity. So he runs out of the cafe and the car stops, remember, midway through the turn. But here's the catch, a mere five feet from where Princip was standing. So unfortunately, where he attempted this turn was directly in front of the cafe where Princip was waiting. And Princip realizing this rushes out. And now here we are five feet away. So Princip not being the, the great marksman as, as many other assassins are, he realizes he has no chance to prime his bomb, but he has a secondary weapon, his nine millimeter pistol. He takes out the pistol. He fires two shots and has been quoted in saying, I've even looked away when I shot. But unfortunately, it hits Sophie in the abdomen and the other shot the jugular of the Archduke. Now, the owner of the car, who was owned by a man by uh, the name of Count Franz von Harek, he was an officer of the Austrian Army's Transport Corps. Uh, he was actually a witness to the event, and he heard uh, not only the shots, witnessed the shots, and then ran over to assist the Archduke and his wife. The Archduke, I guess, was repeatedly saying, it's nothing, it's nothing, and was pleading with his wife as well not to die for the sake of their kids. But Princip, knowing his eventual fate, attempts suicide at the scene by shooting himself. But then a quick thinking onlooker, I guess, swiftly knocks the gun from his hand. A, a mob began to close in and Princip was eventually rescued by the police and imprisoned. So you now have Sophie passing away in the car as well as the lucky shot that hits the Archduke and the jugular and they both pass away. And of course, we know that that's going to be the, the spark that really ignites the powder keg. But then we think of what Princip, all the chances that Princip had and all these, these just really unfortunate events that took place. We got to think back to Princip and his life as a 19-year-old boy born in Bosnia in 1894, a very small town called Oblege, Bosnia. Uh, his parents, Peter and, and Maria, um, she was 14 years younger than, than Peter was. But they had nine children, four daughters, five sons, and he was one of three to survive infancy. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because this is this is really interesting. Princip's birth date is, is recorded as July 13th, 1894. 
when he was baptized a month later, I guess it was a young priest, uh, recorded the birth date in the parish register on July uh, 13th, 1894. But he recorded the date in the civil register mistakenly as June 13th, 1894. So now this mistake would actually play a pivotal role in the event that we just talked about, his imprisonment. Because the law in this area of the world states that anyone under the age of 20 cannot receive the death penalty, he will face prison time instead. And this is what, what's really ironic about this whole thing. His actions result in the death of more than 10 million other people, and he's not going to face the death penalty himself. But after our short break, the most coincidental part of this story has to do with the car itself and its license plate. And hopefully at this point, our listeners will understand where our codified title of episode three comes from. Educators, the most dangerous place you can find yourself as teachers is in the comfort zone. Team History gives you the tools, know-how, and confidence to move forward regardless of where you are in your career. The education model has changed drastically in the 21st century, but have you adapted with it? Despite their concentration in social studies, Team History offers consulting in all subjects in all areas of education. Their mentoring is both professional and personal. They specialize in co-teaching models, making technology a focus in the classroom, and streamlining curriculum and standard-focused alignment. Have the confidence to take the next step in teaching. Team History can help. Want to know more? Go to teachingrevolution.weebly.com. That's teachingrevolution.weebly.com. You know, Phil, you and I got talking during that break. You know, history and life in general is really remarkable. And that word fate, you know, you and I were, were discussing specifically. It's if you take a look at these two men and the things that happened in their lives that brought them to that point in history, in that city, on that street, in front of that, that cafe, and how altering that was for history and for the countries around the world, it's really remarkable. I mean, there were some major events in Franz Ferdinand's life, but some that were so seemingly small but in hindsight, we're so significant. The, the fact that he originally was third in line and moved his rank up to being the heir to the throne, achieving the position he did in the military that, that took him to Bosnia-Herzegovina to do that job. The disdain, really, for the Habsburg family and the Balkans played a major role in this. And then the fact that his wife Sophie was there with him that day by his side, that in itself was a rarity. The whole story, looking back, as we're able to and having it all laid out now is just remarkable. It completely is. I mean, the, the things that have had to happen for that one shining moment to occur is, is almost unbelievable um, in a literal sense. I mean, even just the day of the, the fact that uh, you know, all the other assassins kind of didn't have enough nerve to continue that, that uh, second attempt, they all left and then Princip decided to stay. And then at that same time you have, Sophie and, and the Archduke um, deciding to go to the hospital, which right. against Sophie's wishes, uh, they end up doing. And that's eventually what, what caused them to stall to uh, for Leopold Loika to miss the accelerator, um, to, to not only miss the accelerator, but then make a U-turn because he made a wrong turn uh, on a road he's not really familiar with and a car he's not familiar with. 
And then he stalls long enough for Princip to realize, oh my gosh, I have an opportunity to assassinate this guy uh, in, a, in a second attempt and then be within five feet of him. All of this is just is absolutely incredible. Yeah. So it, it is. It, it All signs point to fate like this was meant to happen. Right. And, and speaking of fate, it was interesting. And I'm sure you found the same uh, things as you did your research. Such a major event um, from this time period, um, separating fact from legend and fact from fiction, that idea of fate, it seems like Franz Ferdinand at least had some sort of a premonition that he would he would face an early death, possibly at the hand of his, an assassin. Two interesting things I came across that really, I'm going to be honest, because we, we want to make sure that these, this, these podcasts are as factual as, as possible. Um, the fact that there was an aide, supposedly, prior to June 28th, um, who was with him, supposedly, again, when a fortune teller had told the Archduke that, quote, he would one day let loose a world war. Wow. So, I mean, that's wow. interesting. But to me, a kind of a red flag, as you know, it was referred to as the Great War, the war to end all wars. That whole term, world war, really didn't come about. So, you know, maybe that kind of, I question the validity of that. But again, just that myth, just that legend, it fits into the whole aura of this story. The second one was that, uh, you know, Franz Ferdinand was very well documented that he was an extreme um, hunter. Oh. And that he, yeah, traveled around the world, uh, kept meticulous records of where he was, what he was able to kill. Um, the, the record I found, he, he killed just shy of 300,000 animals, 300, wild animals. 300,000. Right. Um, in, his, in his career. Oh and gosh. the story that, that correlates with that is that he killed apparently a white stag in 1913. And it, an extremely rare animal. And one of the hunters who'd been traveling with him said that that was a very bad omen, that a member of his family would die within a year. Again, it's been passed down, you know, orally, not so much written, but throughout history. It's interesting to point out, we question whether or not it's 100% true. What does seem to be valid was that based on what relatives have, have recorded and what relatives of his have recalled, reliable sources, that Franz Ferdinand did think at some point murdering um, or being murdered would be a fate that he might uh, face and that he did seem depressed and, and full of for, uh, forebodings uh, prior to making his trip. So, you know, you think of fate and you think about uh, some of the things that might have been in the back of his mind. I think that's that's kind of interesting to point out. Yeah, it is. I mean, that whole idea of discerning between legends and truth, we have we have such an incredible story uh, in our midst that I think, you know, as, as time goes on, um, you know, it's difficult to prove any of this a century later when, of course, record keeping wasn't as rigorous as it is today. Uh, and as you found, there's legends and truth. And I've actually found the same thing in regards to the car that he's driving. So we know that it's a double Phaeton uh, car and a double Phaeton is just in reference to the fact that the driver and the passenger are, are essentially separated um, almost by like a firewall between the two. So it's, it's, it's like a double model T almost, if you can envision that. So, but the legend has it. Now, once again, we can't really discern whether or not this is, this is factual. So we do want to make a disclaimer there, 
But I think the legends in itself are quite interesting, the fact that it's been passed down from generation to generation. So we'll start with the legend first, then we'll get to uh, the, the definite factual part of this. The legend has it is that in the next 12 years following the assassination, the double Phaeton saw 15 different owners. And that during that time period, the, the car was involved in accidents that actually claimed the lives of 13 people. Once again, legend, but um, you know whether or not this is true, this is still in question. One owner, an Austrian general, became insane, died in the asylum. Uh, another one, after owning the car for just nine days, apparently, collided with two peasants and a tree after uh, quite the valiant attempt to avoid the crash altogether. Another owner committed suicide. Uh, with this one car, the governor of Yugoslavia apparently suffered four separate accidents, one of which cost him an arm. He sold the car to a friend who bought the, quote, cursed car on a dare, and the friend flipped the car over and was crushed in the accident. Uh, lastly, a, a Swiss racing driver met exactly the, the same fate. So the last owner of the car, who apparently was Tiber Hirschfeld, a Romanian garage owner who drove the car to a wedding with five friends, the vehicle suddenly spun out of control and crashed, killing all but one on board. Now, my question is, though, with these legends, and of course, as, as a historian yourself, we're, we're always trying to find the validity of statements. My question is, especially as a car guy, if something has been damaged so many times, would it look as put together yeah. uh, as it does as it sits in the Sarajevo Museum? So that's my one question that I, I might be leaning on the side of this might be just legend. Now, the factual part of this, and this is probably one of the most unbelievable coincidences uh, of this entire story. As it sits right now, the if you look closely in the car, there's actually a secondary odometer, and it's it's uh, 8,596 kilometers is still on the odometer, and which is kind of cool. But if you look closely, and we have the the uh, pictures of the 1900s to to prove this as well. If you look closely, the license plate on the car, and this this may be uh, where some of our listeners would understand the the title of our episode. If you look closely on the car, the license plate reads A, and then three I's, two more I's, and an eight. So at first glance, you're probably just assuming that's just a regular license plate. But the, the title of the episode is A Glimpse to the End of the War. And that title of the episode is, of course, the reference to the license plate, which if you maneuver the numbers around, the numbers in the letter around, it's quite unbelievable. So if you take that A and you pair it up with a 11, you actually get A111118. The A for armistice, the next 11 November, the next 11, the 11th day of November, and the last two numbers, 18, which stands for 1918. You have A111118, the day, the month, and the year that the armistice, the end of World War I, was signed. That's unbelievable. I remember the first time you told me that, and we said to ourselves, literally, that can't be true. That can't be true. That and, can't that's, be true. and that's kind of the ongoing thing for us as we start to research more and more stories. It's like, there's no way that's true. This is this is 100% been, been verified. And you listeners, uh, Google this and, and look up some images. We have images uh, available that, that proves that was the license plate, and it still sits in the Sarajevo Museum uh, with that very nameplate. So regardless of the legend, the truth stands out as one of the most incredible coincidences uh, history has ever provided us. A glimpse into the future, uh, a foretelling even, was hidden in plain sight on the car that started it all. It's quite the story.
And it's a great way, I think, to, to end an episode that you and I had looked forward to, an episode that hopefully everyone listening is entertained by. And you get that, that end of the episode twist to really put an exclamation point on all the amazing things that we've talked about over Absolutely. the last you know, 40 plus minutes. So to give you an idea, episode four uh, is going to be coming out next week. Um, and, and it's going to be a little bit different. We're inviting a guest into our studios for the next episode, a colleague of ours, really a, a mentor of ours. We're happy to have him here. And one of the reasons he is going to be with us is because in addition to being a great teacher, he's also a great storyteller. He is. So That's what he's known for. That's what he's known for. We're going to have a great time, we'll get into some more uh, events that I think people will will enjoy. And again, learn something from. Absolutely. And don't forget to uh, like us on Facebook. We officially have a Facebook and Instagram. So don't forget to like, us, to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram for episode updates. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.